This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Cutting Through Spiritual Attachment, recorded March 17, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I'm going to discuss a question that was left in the question box by Jana. She didn't write on here confidential, so the default position is if you don't say you don't want your name mentioned, it gets mentioned. And here's her question. Until one realizes there is no path, many spiritual seekers has, have a way of understanding and being in the world that reflects their style of seeking or spiritual path. For example, some paths are more heart or intuition based, and some are more knowledge or intellectually based. At some point on this path, intellectual processes must surrender to unknowing, and the mind takes on a subservient role, and consciousness radiates and observes through the heart. So I am wondering this. How can a seeker learn to recognize when intellectual processes on the path become a barrier to gnosis, or enlightenment? And how does the heart enter into the intellectual type of path? If one finds a balance between Janana and Bhakti, what might this look like? So, excellent question. Uh, the styles of seeking, as she mentioned, are Janana and Bhakti, which are two Hindu terms, Sanskrit terms, that refer to two different kinds of seekers. Uh, really, they're poles, uh, two poles of a spectrum, so it's not absolute either or, but the two poles are those who uh, are seeking truth, <coughs> Uh, those are Jananis, and then those who are seeking the beloved, or God, or love, and those are Bhaktis. Uh, in the end, it's really the same thing, because the truth that mystics testify to is the truth of selflessness, and true love is selfless. So true tr uh, love is really truth and action, but they can seem to be quite different. And I thought of a good analogy for this, I hope it's a good analogy, it's like an airplane. If you think of the spiritual path as an airplane, and it's an airplane with a center aisle and then two sides, seats on both sides. And as you get on this plane, bhaktis go to the right and jananis go to the left. So, <laughs> so uh, all the bhaktis over here on the right and the jananis are, uh, I mean, the bhaktis, the jananis are on the right and the bhaktis are on the left. And then you take off on this plane and you're flying along, you know, and every once in a while the uh, pilot there says, you know, well, now if you look out the, the window on your left, you'll see Mount Shasta. Well, all the bhaktis look out the window. They see Mount Shasta. Oh, they're ooing and ah, and how beautiful it is. And the Jananis over here are scratching their heads because they don't see Mount Shasta. <laughs> Sighing about, you know, these crazy bhaktis. And then they go along a little farther, and the pilot says, now if you look out on your right, you'll see Diamond Lake. <laughs> All the Jananis look out, ooh, ah, about Diamond Lake, and all the Bhaktis are shaking their heads because they can't see it. So it looks like you're flying through two different landscapes, but in fact, you're flying through one landscape, but just from the point of view. They can look quite different. Now, as I said, that's kind of extreme, and really on a plane like this, you'll have people, you know, moving over and, and sitting in a Bhakti seat and then going back to their Janana or vice versa, or, you know. Like me, I like to jump up and run down in the, in the back of the plane and look out both sides. And so there's uh, a lot of crossover. <coughs> but it's easier for us to just to think of it this way in these extremes uh, to talk about. So keep that in mind. Now, the difference really between a bhakti and a janani lies in the motivation. Why they got on the path in the first place. And the janani has a longing for truth. And that's why Janani usually begins with uh, intellectual kinds of inquiry. Because the Janani believes the truth is, in the beginning anyway, is something intellectual. That's how we're taught in this culture and in most cultures uh, when you are, especially if you are educated and you've studied something about philosophy or science or whatever. And the Bhakti, as I said, has this longing for love and in particularly uh, in the form of the divine beloved, God. So the bhakti begins by cultivating devotion and doing devotional practices. So they begin with two kinds of motivation that seem to be different, and then two sets of practices. 
Uh, now, as Janana, uh, as Jana said, uh, eventually, for the Janana, attachment to intellectual processes does indeed become a barrier on the path. But it is also true that attachment to feelings of love and devotion become a barrier for the bhakti. So I'm going to try to answer your question, but I'm going to expand it and talk about spiritual attachments that happen for both Jananis and Bhaktis and how they become barriers and how we can recognize them and cut through them. So it's going to be a more general kind of discussion, but it will include what you were talking about. I want to be fair to both sides here. <coughs> so... The problem for both, and really from a mystic's point of view, for everybody is that we take this sense or experience of self, of a separate self, isolated from the world, to be real. We believe that that is a, an actual entity in there. And so that belief then gets the mind going, and the mind constructs the story of I. The story of I, which is woven out of our thoughts. Not necessarily deep philosophical intellectual thoughts, the day-to-day -day chatter that goes on in your mind. And it's fueled by self-centered desires and aversions and emotions. That sort of supplies the, the gasoline that runs the motor. And they're very intertwined. They go round and round. And then the whole problem becomes which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And actually, uh, uh, ultimately, it is a, it's not a problem of the thinking mind as we, as we think of it formally, but it is a problem of the imagination. It's the root problem, this drawing this distinction between I and other self and world, subject and object. So we actually eventually have to get back to that. But right away, once we have that distinction, all the emotions we experience, the desires and aversions, become self-centered. <coughs> we rarely in our lives experience an emotion that isn't owned. It's my emotions, what I like, what I feel, da-da-da. Occasionally, and this is a good clue, occasionally we do experience emotions that transport us out of ourselves. Beauty, for instance, uh, wonderful works of art or, or music or whatever can inspire in us emotions that we really literally forget ourselves for a while. Which, by the way, we usually enjoy, if you notice that. That is just bliss, you know. Love can do the same thing. Our love is normally self-centered, but we can have moments, experiences, where there's love that transports us out of ourselves. Even fear can transport us out of ourselves. And I've mentioned this before, but some of you maybe have had this experience in the midst of a crisis when the adrenaline is rushing through your body and suddenly it's like something takes over, like a grace. And you find yourself operating completely efficiently with an inward calmness, without any distractions. And it's like a grace has taken over your life and is flying on automatic pilot there. And you realize in that moment, there's no concern about self. Am I doing right? What do people think of me? It's just all wiped away. So it's not just positive emotions that can do this. It's also negative, quote, negative emotions. So there's a clue here. In any case, that is not nor our normal experience. Our normal experience is that we desire uh, certain things. I desire, and I want to avoid certain things. And so our emotions themselves are seen or experienced to be, be uh, dualistic or experienced in a dualistic fashion. So not only is there a dualism here between I and other, but then our emotions themselves are divided between the good ones and the bad ones and what we desire and what we don't. And then the objects of our desire and aversion seem to be opposites. So normally speaking, you know, I desire prosperity and uh, I'm afraid of poverty and I desire health and I'm afraid of sickness. I desire uh, life, and I'm afraid of death. So again, once we have this initial distinction between I and other, the whole world starts to become very dualistic. Now, the plot of this story of I, then, is how can I get what I want and be happy, and avoid what I don't want, and avoid suffering? 
just like a, a Hollywood soap opera, you know, will Helen Trent find happiness with Mr. Right or whatever. <laughs> now, it's interesting about this story because it completely absorbs our attention. And we did a little meditation earlier this morning, and I think you maybe noticed how powerful it is, how much it distracts us. Completely absorbs our attention and distracts us 99.9% of the day. And because our attention is distracted, it can't see the reality behind this illusionary world that is one, that is non-dual, because it's trapped in this story. So the problem then of a spiritual path is to liberate attention from the story of I. And all the practices, Janana or Bhakti, are designed to do just that. They are methods and they are means to interrupt that story and to free attention from it. So attention itself can go back to truth, can go back to reality. And it will. You don't have to make any effort to do that. It's just like lifting a veil or a curtain. And so, boom, <laughs> the curtain rises and you just see That's all. That's what it is. So let's start with the Janani, who's just gotten on this plane and uh, sitting over here on the right side of the airplane. And as I said, the Jananis come on this plane because the Janani has this longing, this passionate curiosity to know the truth. What is the truth? And there's a reason for this. Because the Janani identifies more with thought than with emotion. In other words, in the... In the uh, vicious circle that constitutes the story of I that's running around between thought and emotion. Thought is creating the emotion. Emotion is driving the thought and so forth. The Janani is focusing more on thought. And that's what the Janani's identity is. So we could say, to borrow a phrase from um, uh, Descartes, the Janani's epistemology is Descartes. I think, therefore I am. And you could say the Janani then is sort of a natural essayist that everything that goes on, the, the Janani's mind writes an essay about. And then the Janani thinks that if I can only know the truth about life, then I can escape suffering and I'll be happy. So that's the Janani's uh, approach to life, a strategy about life. Figure it all out and then I'll know what to do and then I'll be happy. Now, as I said also, the Janani then thinks this truth, this figuring out, is going to be some sort of conceptual exercise. You're going to arrive at the right theory. Uh, you're going to uh, have uh, the right idea about things. So they start to read, they study hard, they take notes, they question and so forth. And at first it's very puzzling, you know, mystical teachings particularly, because they're so paradoxical. And the Janani studies more and reads more and really begins to understand how these paradoxes work and can explain them, can write essays on them, perhaps, you know, <laughs> papers and so forth, gets really good at this. And they start to understand the teachings at a conceptual level. And then that starts to be an attachment. And, you know, it's very interesting. Often, it's very hard for Jananis who actually do start to understand the teachings to realize that this is an attachment and become a barrier and an obstacle. I met one guy once who uh, came around the center for a while who was extremely knowledgeable, extremely intellectual, and his life was a mess, a total mess. And in one sentence, he'd explain his high teachings, and the next sentence, he'd be talking about how he, he was being sued and he was suing somebody else and this and that and so forth. It was, I mean, it was, he was so sad. And he made no connection between what he was understanding and his own life. Uh, last week, uh, Tom was telling us about Plato and the ancient idea of philosophy was supposed to transform your life. But when the intellectual understanding becomes uh, a barrier, then it's a, it becomes a hindrance to transforming your life. You, know, you don't look at your life. You remain oblivious to the other side of the story of I, these aversions and desires and disappointments and frustration and all the suffering, the emotional suffering that's driving the story of I. So this becomes a barrier. Here's what Huang Po says. Studying the way, the way is the Zen term, 
Huang Po's the Zen master. The way is the Zen term for the path or the, and the ultimate reality. Studying the way is, is just a figure of speech. It is a method of arousing people's interests in the early stages of their development. In fact, the way is not something which can be studied. Study leads the retention of concepts, and so the way is entirely misunderstood. So that's a very good example of someone who has become attached to concepts, and it's become a barrier to them. So what's the antidote for the Janani? Meditation. Meditation is a method of training the mind not to be distracted by thoughts. And that's why when we meditated this morning, we focused on the breath, and you could focus on anything, a mantra or anything, but the idea is you learn to ignore your thoughts. It's not about repressing your thoughts or suppressing your thoughts, but it's learning not to allow attention to get wrapped up in that story of I that the mind keeps spinning. So after a while, if you do the meditation practice, the kind we did this morning, uh, what you find is attention learns to just stay on the breath or whatever object you are using, and thoughts are going on, they're rising and going away, but you are no longer being distracted by them. So that meditation then is the antidote for this attachment to a conceptual understanding. Now, it doesn't mean you don't ever read again or anything like that, but you start to read spiritual teachings from instead of trying to understand them conceptually and figure them out and so forth, you start to read them as a mirror for your own delusion. And I'll give you one example from my life. At one point I was reading the Bhagavad Gita uh, on my path. And there's a line in that where Krishna is teaching Arjuna, and he says, anyone who imagines I act is totally deluded. Now, instead of trying to figure out what that meant conceptually and philosophically and so forth, I suddenly looked at that and I thought, well, I think I act. So what does that mean about me? And then it started to draw my attention to all the moments during the day when I was acting, or I thought I was acting, I was doing something. So it made me question in the moment, well, is there really an actor here? Is there really somebody here who's willing things to happen? It became a very powerful practice for me. So the teaching was no longer about some philosophy, it was reflecting my life. And in reflecting my life, shedding awareness on aspects of my life that I was just oblivious to before. So that's the role then, teachings and reading and so forth, start to play <laughs> after you've given up the idea that you are going to ever conceptually understand these teachings. Now, uh, let's go to the bhakti. The bhakti comes, sits down on the plane with this heartfelt longing for love for the beloved. And there's a good reason for this too, because the bhakti now identifies more with the emotional fuel of the story of I. The bhakti isn't so interested in the thoughts. doesn't mean bhaktis don't have thoughts. They do. But that's not where the focus of their identity is. The focus of their identity is in emotional states. What I, not what I think, but what I feel. So the bhakti's epistemology is, I feel, therefore I am. And the bhakti is a dramatist rather than an essayist. So in the bhakti's mind... The thoughts now aren't writing essays, but they're creating dramas. You know, am I going to get Mr. or Mrs. Wright and so forth? And what's going on with my relationships? What's going on with my job? Da-da-da-da-da. Big drama. This is what gives the bhakti a sense of self, that I am starring in this movie called The Story of I. It's wonderful. It's not always wonderful, but at least I get the star. I mean, you know, even if it's sad and tragic, I always get the star. And then the Bhakti's view of uh, divine love is really a romance. And in fact, many Bhaktis uh, use the analogy of human romance for the romance with the divine beloved. So the Bhakti's uh, idea of happiness is, uh, if only I can win God's love forever, I'll be happy. And so it becomes sort of a big courtship and everything. Uh, the love story, the love story of all time, so to speak. Now, for the bhakti, the bhakti path does not really get going until there is at least some initiatory experience of the divine beloved. 
unlike a Janani, a Janani can kind of drift onto a path out of curiosity. You can start reading a lot of philosophy, and then you can stumble on some mystical philosophers, and then you can sort of uh, switch over. But for a bhakti to love God, you have to have some experience of God, the divine form, the divine beloved. It doesn't have to be, you know, the Old Testament God with a great beard or something. Uh, but it can be a just an experience, and often is, an experience of a transcendent love, mercy, forgiveness. Immediate experience. Wow. It's like, you know, falling in love. You know, you didn't, you sometimes didn't even expect it. You know, you're just walking down the street and there she is. Boom. You know. So once a bhakti has this experience, that's when a bhakti's path really takes off. That's when the romance really begins. Now, the trouble for the bhakti, however, is that bhaktis can often mistake this initiatory experience for being the end of the path. So a good example of this are born-again Christians who have a conversion experience, an experience of God's love, and I am saved. That's high drama. And then, but that's it. See? There's no, uh, especially if they've not been exposed to mystical teachings, there's no sense that they're uh, anything beyond that. And so what happens is the mind weaves that into the story of I. I am now one who saved. But it's a genuine experience. You know, born-again Christians aren't lying or imagining things. They are having a genuine, heartfelt experience of the divine. But there's no understanding this is the first step. So what a bhakti really needs, even more than a janana, is somebody around who can introduce them to mystical teachings. And it usually has to be somebody who's quite saintly themselves, unlike a janana teacher. A janana needs a Socratic teacher, someone who can rip the rug out from that intellectual understanding. A bhakti needs a saintly person that you can see the depths of what this love affair might lead to, not just a little conversion experience and you go back to life as usual. So for the bhakti, the problem here becomes immediately a very obvious pride. I am saved, God loves me, and so forth. <coughs> so right away, if you want to go deeper, first of all, take up the practice of mystical prayer. Because mystical prayer, uh, prayer of the heart, is a way of deepening that experience, of, of not just settling for one flash of it. In mystical prayer, we go into the heart where the beloved resides. And you go in again deeper and deeper. And then to combat the pride of having been singled out by the divine, you know, uh, you take up practices of precepts and uh, compassionate service to others. So this is, uh, engenders some sense of humility. You are here to serve. You are not here to be served, as Jesus said. Which is greater, the one who dines or the one who serves? And all his disciples said, well, the one who dies. And, said, and Jesus said, well, you see, here I am among you as one who serves. So he's being an example for this. Theophane the recluse sums this up very well. <clears throat> he says, mercilessness towards self, willingness to undertake any service for others, and complete self-surrender to the Lord, abiding in him in prayer. These are the things which build up spiritual life. So right away, uh, the bhakti is then uh, knocked off his or her pedestal and put to work, so to speak. And the whole path then becomes one of service and surrender, which again involves the emotions. It's, it's how do I uh, let go of self-centered desires and aversions, and how do I let love and compassion flow through instead? So that's the antidote to the attachment to the idea that the initiatory experience is it, that's the end of the path, and that's all I have to do. So, back to the Janana side of the aisle. Uh, now the Janani's over here on the right-hand side of the plane, now they're all meditating, the good ones are anyway. And there they are, and they're watching their thoughts, and they're, they're allowing their thoughts to dissolve. And you know, when you start to meditate, actually, it's a very interesting thing happens to most people, because that mind gets very creative. It says, oh, oh, you think you're going to ignore me? Well, look at this. Look at this insight. This is really profound. Now, what about this? Isn't this right, George? Yes, George has some experience with that. So you've got to learn even the great, the great profound theories that arise and so forth. Uh-uh, just ignore them. Let them drop away. If you do that, 
you get to a point where you can conduct a non-conceptual inquiry. By that I mean you're still using the mind to direct inquiry, but you're not looking to figure something out. You're looking for a direct insight, an experience, not an emotional experience, a cognitive experience of reality. You're looking to have little glimpses of what this reality might be behind the veil. So you can actually do some analysis. You can, uh, if you're in this meditative state where you are not caught up in thought, then you might decide to observe phenomena arising and passing. And if you start doing that directly, you begin to see directly what the mystics teach about impermanence, that everything is impermanent. So this starts to break down our idea that the world is made out of solid objects. And you continue doing that. You start to realize the imaginary nature of thought. You have a direct insight into it. You see it right there. All this thought is imaginary. Even my great theories and philosophies, they're just nothing but thoughts. And they poof, they poof, they go. They come and go. You might get some even more profound insights, little glimpses of the emptiness, as the Buddhists call it, of objects or of the self. That is the lack of solidity in anything. It relates to the impermanence. So you're getting these direct, non-conceptual insights now. Oh, that's great. That's much better than wasting your time trying to figure out the world because you're never going to figure out the world because every theory can be doubted. Then there'll be a new theory comes along. There's no end to that. But then what happens? The Janani starts to think, how marvelous. This is wonderful. I see things in a way that no one else sees them. (laughs) I'm having all these great insights. I mean mine. So what happens is the ego mind of the jhani takes these insights, which are genuine, non-conceptual, direct insights, and clothes them with concepts, with ideas, verbalizes them, and then wants to write them down, wants to remember them, maybe starts keeping a journal of all the insights he or she's had and so forth. <coughs> it's like trophies, you know? It's like taking, a, uh, taking the insight and you, you encase it in some uh, gold and you start putting it up on your shelf and you're getting these, oh, there's my insight into impermanence. There was my insight. Well, that was a big one, <laughs> emptiness of objects. And, so, and you've got them lined up there on your, on your shelf as trophies. So... It's this conceptualizing, then, of the insights that feeds right back into the story of I. Now I'm an advanced seeker on the spiritual path, not just a beginner anymore, and I've had all these insights. Look at my trophies here. and Maybe you write some papers about them, publish them, or whatever, you know. But here's what my teacher, Dr. Wolf, said, who was a very extreme Janani. Now it's very interesting what he says. He who would become one with the eternal must first learn to be humble, He must offer upon the sacrificial altar the pride of the knower. He must become one who lays no possessive claim to knowledge or wisdom. This is the state of the mystic ignorance of the emptied heart. He who has thus become as nothing in his own right, then is prepared to become possessed by wisdom herself. The completeness of self-emptying is the precondition to the realization of unutterable fullness. Okay, he's talking like a bhakti here in a way. See, it's very interesting. So, this attachment to the insight, the conceptualization of the insight, becomes itself then the second barrier for the janani. And what happens is it usually starts to lead to a period of aridity where you keep practicing and maybe you keep having more insights, but they aren't doing it for you anymore. It's like, oh, um, well, there's impermanence again, you know? And nothing's really changing in your life. You maybe have a little more freedom from your own thought processes and stuff, and uh, you recognize that you're never going to figure out the world in terms of a theory and so forth, but really, then your life is just rolling along, and so the spiritual path itself starts to dry up for you. So what's the antidote to this? Love and compassion, cultivating love and compassion and service to others, and uh, precepts. This is why the Tibetan master, Bokar Rinpoche, says, Without love and compassion, every other practice, no matter how deep it may appear, is not a path to awakening. Neither mental calming, nor meditations on deities, nor exercises on subtle channels or energies. 
So again, we have to actually practice. We have to start to interrupt and change our behavior, our behavior that's conditioned by the story of mind. And the way you do it, it's very simple. Again, Theophane the Recluse, by the way, who was a great Eastern Orthodox mystic, writes, humility is acquired by acts of humility, love by acts of love. It ain't that difficult. I've had people come to me and, you know, they're worried about how they feel. They worry about the compassion. Is their heart open? Is it closed? And so forth. You know, it's all I. This is the, the Bhakti dramatist here, you know. Forget it. It's, it's quite simple. You see somebody who needs help on the street, you help them out. Uh, it doesn't mean just giving money to the beggars and stuff. It's giving of your time, your energy. It's just giving a smile to the grouchy bank clerk. It's, it's not that hard. You begin with little acts of it. Little acts of humility are every time you're in a conversation there and people are gossiping, there's the mind that are throwing its two cents and so everybody knows what you're thinking. But just refrain from that. Or if you are asked for an opinion, you give an opinion, you say, well, it's just my opinion, you know, which is the truth, by the way. You're not being uh, overly humble. You're just recognizing what is the truth. So this is very interesting what's happening here because at this point in the flight, now the Janani is starting to move over to the Bhakti's side of the plane and starting to take up Bhakti practices. You don't now necessarily have to have some form of the divine. You don't necessarily have to have some initiatory experience in that, uh, in a transcendent sense of this love, which the bhaktis already have. You've got other people and other beings around you to practice on. So you're doing the same sorts of practices, though. You are now starting to pay attention to the desire and aversion side, the emotional side of the story of I, the fuel that's fueling all this. You're starting to come to grips with uh, why you became so intellectual in the first place. You were trying to escape from all this suffering, but the suffering is right there in your disappointments, your frustrations, all that emotional stuff. So it's really important. You look into that, and this is what true humility is and what true compassion is. You see, oh, you know, I'm suffering just like everybody else. I might have a dozen uh, PhDs in philosophy. It doesn't matter. I'm just like the construction worker over here. We both have, you know, uh, we've lost friends to death, parents, loved ones, and so forth. We're getting older. We're suffering from diseases now, and we're frightened of dying. I mean, there's no difference between us. And all your degrees are just nothing compared to that deep, rich, immediate experience of our lives, the suffering of our lives. And that is what compassion literally means. Passion means to suffer. It's like the passion of Jesus. And co means with. So it's co, compassion, co-passion. And so now you're starting to lose the pride of the knower because what you know is not so important anymore. It just is, becomes irrelevant when you start to recognize this connection of, of suffering and compassion. So that's the antidote then to attachment to insights to having more and more insights. You take up practices of love and compassion. Now for the bhakti, especially uh, doing practices like contemplative prayer, but also practices of serving others and exercising precepts, this opens the heart. And if you're doing contemplative prayer, you go deeper in the heart and you're letting go of all these dramas about self. And you start having more and more of these spiritual emotions consolations, they're called in the Christian tradition, graces. And these are, I mean, these top anything you've experienced with other human beings, believe me. And you start to practice in order to get these experiences. In the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition, they call this spiritual hedonism. Uh, here's what Catherine of Genoa says about it. She says, Lord, Lord, I want no signs from you, nor am I looking for intense feelings to accompany your love. They get in the way of pure love, for under the guise of pure love, it is those emotional feelings to which the soul becomes attached. Love must be naked. So this is a different kind of love than the dramatic, romantic love that the bhakti uh, starts on the path imagining that he or she is going to end up with. This is not an emotional love. When we experience love as an emotion, it is a reflection of this, at least the selfless 
part of the emotion is. But love, truly speaking, is not an emotional experience. It's just the open ground, the, uh, the space of awareness that is all-embracing that has no judgmental factors in it. It's often compared to a, a mirror. And the mirror doesn't reject anything that is held up in front of it. Beautiful, ugly, good, bad. It doesn't try to correct anything. It doesn't reject anything. It accepts everything without the least bit of judgment. This is what divine love is. This is what God's love is, so to speak. It's that complete, ultimate acceptance of everything. And that's why it's so amazing to us to experience even just a little glimpse of it. Because we're so used to uh, a limited uh, love, a love that's used as a bargaining chip in negotiation, you know. <clears throat> well, I'll love you if. But here's a love that asks nothing. It's just open space. Ooh. So, uh, this attachment to the feelings, the spiritual feelings then, becomes the second barrier for the bhakti. <coughs> because you start practicing just to get these feelings. And what's this? It's just more story of I. It's a nice spiritual story of I, but it's still a story of I. This usually leads to a dark night of contemplation, as, or dark night of the spirit, as St. John of the Cross called it, <coughs> where these feelings dry up. Just like the insights begin to dry up or no longer do it for the Janani, these Graces, these consolations dry up for the bhakti after a while. Because, you know, all emotions are transitory. I mean, that's the nature of emotion. It means to move. You're never going to arrive at the emotional state that think, you think is going to make you happy. Or if you do get there, it's going to be gone. Then the next second, it starts to change and transform like everything else. Here's how John of the Cross uh, describes it. God leaves the intellect in darkness, the will in aridity, the memory in emptiness, and the affections in supreme affliction, bitterness, and anguish. By depriving the soul of the feeling of satisfaction it previously obtained from spiritual blessings. <clears throat> so what is the antidote for the bhakti? Self-inquiry. What is it that's keeping me from my beloved? So now the bhakti starts to move over to the Janana side of the airplane and takes up practices of self-inquiry and starts to look at how the thought part of this story of I works, how it's the thoughts that have gone unexamined that are stirring up the emotions, how what I think about the world is determining what I desire and what I want to avoid and so forth. And I start looking, just like the Johnny, very closely, and I see how in a situation, a, a conditioned thought automatically arises and that stirs up a desire. So I just look at the thoughts about uh, these spiritual graces I'm experiencing. So instead of just following the desire for them, I say, well, wait a minute, let me see this. And I see that I'm feeling a little unhappy. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling maybe anguished, as John of the Cross says. And the thought arises, oh, if only you could have one of those uh, wonderful spiritual experiences. Why don't you go do some chanting? Oh, now I start to see this is really the story of I. And I'm seeing what role the thoughts play in it. And when I can see that, you see, I can just let the thought dissolve away. I don't have to follow it because I've examined it. I've brought it to the line of awareness. So, at this point, the Janana and Bhakti paths start to merge. And they become more indistinguishable. You know, uh, It's like uh, a circle with radii. And in the beginning, you could be, uh, if you're starting at the circumference of the circle, you're a lot of distance away. If you're moving towards the center, they get closer and closer and closer. And in fact, finally, they all disappear right in the center. So this is where they really start to merge. Because if the Janani is doing the Janana practices and the Bhakti practices, the Janana practices of uh, meditation, disengaging from thought and so forth, but also love and compassion and service to others. And if the bhakti is doing the same thing, starting with the going deeper into the heart uh, and, and practicing love and compassion and service to others, but now also examining the story of I in detail of the thinking part of it, the story <clears throat> itself starts to dissolve. It's being interrupted. 
It no longer has the power to distract attention. The uh, attention is becoming freer and freer and freer for both equally. And what happens when attention starts to become freer and freer? The probability for having profound insights into selflessness and even agnostic flashes, glimpses of that oneness that lies beyond this duality uh, that we've set up through our story of I, becomes higher and higher. It is a probability. See, at that point, you can't do anything because at that point, the I that's the doer is, has to disappear. So it's just a probability. It can't be predicted. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. But as the attention gets freer and freer from the story of I, these moments open up. And the moments are between thoughts, between desires, between aversions. Gaps open up. And if attention goes like that, boom, there's a Gnostic flash. And you see, you get a glimpse of the reality, that underlying reality. That's, by the way, the same for Jananis or Bhaktis. No difference whatsoever. The reality is the reality. It doesn't matter how you've gotten there. To carry the analogy uh, of the two uh, aisles for the two kinds of passengers, Bhakti and Janani, to carry that through to the end, at the end of the path, it's like they're all up now in the cockpit and they see one landscape, no difference. But there's a problem with this because for most, in the beginning, a Gnostic flash generates either fear or bliss. And both of them can become barriers. Uh, uh, fear is really an aversion, which is the flip side of an attachment. So a fear arises and that stops the Janani or Bhakti from going forward. Oh, I don't want to experience that. And fear is easier to deal with than bliss. Because fear is an aversion. And so the, the um, antidote is very simple. Don't run away. Stay put. And I don't mean necessarily stay put in that one place if you've been meditating, although that's a good idea to do too. But stay put on your place in the path. Continue doing the practices you've been doing. Don't abandon the path. Don't give up the practices. Because if you then can learn to see that fear itself as just energy, not take the fear into the story of I, oh, I'm afraid, I'm terrible, what's going to happen to me? You see it as just energy. That energy itself can carry you to enlightenment because that energy will erase all other distractions. You know, when you're afraid, you know, you don't have a lot of chit-chat going on in your mind. You're walking down a dark alley and there's somebody following you. Boy, your mind is sharp, focused, clear. Really. <clears throat> and a good example of this is the story of Ramana, uh, Ramana Maharshi. Uh, Ramana Maharshi said, fear drove my mind inward. And in the space of 15 minutes, just carried him to full awakening. So it's a good example of how that works. You can also read uh, Tom Kurtzka's uh, interview from several issues back in Center Voice. He had a lot of experience with this. So uh, that's very simple. And the reason fear is easier to deal with, we usually, we don't get attached to fear because we don't like fear. Bliss is much harder to deal with. It's much harder to recognize that it is an obstacle and it's much easier to mistake it for realization itself. And that's what can happen. We have the realization, we have the true uh, flash, we see reality and there's this tremendous bliss and very subtly, the remnant, if you like, the ego latches on to the bliss. It says, oh, this is what it was all about. Yes, of course. And that bliss can last for hours, days, weeks, even years. And if you fall into that trap and you become convinced that the bliss is the end of the path, that becomes a barrier for you. And uh, several things can happen. You know, First of all, there's the the ego mind says, I am enlightened. I mean, that's right away. Boy, that, that is the height of delusion. Uh, for bhaktis, uh, often bhaktis can think they become a prophet or they think they become, you know, some, a messenger or a, a second coming of Christ or something. The ego takes that experience and just completely inflates it, turns it into the ultimate story of I, which is, of course, the ultimate trap. When mystics say, you know, God and I, we are one, they don't mean I am God. It means God is me, but not I am God. So just be careful of that one. 
But in any case, actually for most people, Bhaktis or Jananis, what happens is after one of the bliss starts to wear off. And they begin to realize they are not enlightened. And so, what happens? The ego mind, you see, even if they never experience the fear, the ego mind knows underneath this, there is fear. Underneath this, what we are getting so close to is selflessness. The very thing that we are most afraid of is the very thing we most long for. In these Gnostic flashes, that becomes crystal clear. Not necessarily to the intellectual mind, but crystal clear nonetheless. So when the bliss wears off, the ego mind of the Janani says, well, okay, so I've had some attainment, and, uh, but there's more work to be done. So let me go back and do my practices and, and double my efforts to meditation, and I'll be uh, even more vigilant about watching my self-centeredness and interrupting it, and I will really cultivate more love and compassion, open my heart more, and so on and so forth. Now, interesting, all of this is great advice at all the other stages of the path leading up to here. Suddenly, this becomes an obstacle. The practice becomes the obstacle. Here's what uh, Ergen Rinpoche says about the idea for the Janani of continuing to practice. <clears throat> the ultimate enemy is the concept of antidote, the conceptual veil. As long as the subtle concept is not eliminated, then the obstruction of dualistic knowledge cannot be cleared up. As long as you think you need an antidote, you are in the realm of duality. There's an I or another. The practices at that point perpetuate that. For the bhakti, it's a very similar thing. The bhakti says, well, maybe, you know, it's better just to be a devotee for the rest of my life. And there are bhakti schools in India that hold that up as the greater ideal than realization. Just to be always longing for the divine, always in love with the divine, that's it. That's all I need. So you continue doing your chanting and your prayer in the heart and your practices and with that, and you remain a devotee. And here's what Ramakrishna says about the uh, lifelong devotee. As long as there is still the consciousness that I am a devotee, God is comprehended as personal, and only his form is realized. This consciousness of a separate ego is a barrier that keeps one at a distance from the highest realization. So the last and fourth barrier here for both the Jani and Bhakti is continuing to practice, continuing with the old practices. It's at this point that they become a, a barrier. Now, I have to say this as a warning. This is at the stage of the path after Gnostic realization. It's not at the beginning of a path. <laughs> and I said, all these, uh, all these practices are antidotes for a particular problem. If you think you are at this stage and are going to jump to here and skip all the antidotes, that's like saying you've got all these diseases that you're not going to take care of and you're going to, uh, you know, uh, ignore them. So we, we, have to, we have to realize these practices are stage-specific. We have to know when to apply them, but we also have to know when they themselves become the barrier, the obstacle. So what can you do about it if you're in this situation? There are two things you can do, two approaches. Uh, one is to increase the effort, to exhaust the effort. To not just go back to practice as you were before, but I mean do or die. You're like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree who got to the end of his path and he said, that's it, I'm sitting under this Bodhi tree and I am not moving until enlightenment strikes. And this is uh, both for Jananis and for Bhaktis. You could just, at that point, just do every practice you could possibly think of and just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going until you can't keep going anymore. And then what happens? the mind, the heart, everything has to let go. Here's uh, an example from the Rinzai Zen school. The Zen master Hakuin says, when all the effort you can muster has been exhausted and you have reached a total impasse and you are like a cat at a rat hole, like the mother hen warming her egg, it will suddenly come and you will break free. The phoenix will get through the golden net. 
the crane will fly free of its cage. And here, from the Bhakti's point of view, here's Lali Shori. She was a great uh, Hindu mystic. She says about her path, Looking neither left nor right, I pursued him. I pushed myself to my limits in my quest. But when I finally gave up and turned around, there he was within me. So, this is the same idea. Pushing yourself to the limits. No difference between the Bhakti and the Janani at this point. The second alternative is actually more difficult, although it sounds easier, and that is just to do nothing, uh, to abandon all effort. And here's the uh, Janana example is Dzogchen, which is uh, considered the highest form of non-practice, practice that's non-practice in the Tibetan school. And a great Dzogchen master, Longchenpa, explains. In the meditation, which is great natural self-perfection, there is no need of modifications and transformations. Whatever arises is the great perfection. There is no need of accepting and renouncing. Maintain the unfabricated intrinsic awareness like an infant child. If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from mind, you will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly the inconceivable sovereignty, which is another way of saying enlightenment. If you can do this with detachment from mind, if you sit down and think you're going to do a Dzogchen practice here and your mind is all off and creating the story of I, uh, not only are you wasting your time, you're actually spending time practicing ego, practicing the creation of the story. Here's the Bhakti example from Teresa of Avila great Christian saint. The soul in that state does no more than the wax when a seal is impressed upon it. The wax does not impress itself. It is only prepared for the impress. That is, it is soft, and it does not even soften itself so as to be prepared. It merely remains quiet and consenting. So you can't even prepare yourself for this. This is, this is why you can't do these practices early in the path. The path is what prepares you. The path is what softens you. Going through the path brings you to this state. So if you get there, the point is then to do nothing, to abandon all effort. So that's the same for Jananis or Bhaktis, no difference. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you, I gave you this little talk this morning to help you recognize spiritual attachments in your path. If you find yourself, for instance, you know, conceptualizing insights and making them into little trophies and so forth, oh, you might recognize that. Oh, wait a minute, Joel talked about that. Or if you find yourself doing uh, devotional practices in order to have these wonderful experiences of love and, and this and that, and you find that you're sitting down each time looking forward to it like a rendezvous with your lover, you might say, oh, Joel mentioned something about that. And then I also want to let you know, and because you probably won't remember all these things, but then there are uh, practices you can do as antidotes. You, you shift your practices at that point on the path. You don't need the old practices anymore. So now you do something else. And this is how a path progresses. And of course, each of you are going to go through it differently. And it's going to be different from you. But, so, but these are general observations. But having heard this talk this morning, don't be settled with a mere intellectual understanding of it, or you'll be doing, making the mistake we started out with talking about. You'll be doing exactly what the Jana, Jana's uh, uh, question raised. So practice, practice, practice. All this is directing you to practice. And I'm going to leave you with one last thing to make sure you don't go away with an intellectual understanding. <laughs> this is from Zen Master Doge, and he says, if you release the inconceivable practice, the original realization fills your hands. If you become free from the original realization, the inconceivable practice is upheld with your whole body. Thank you very much. So are there any uh, questions, comments? Was that helpful? Oh, very helpful. Very holistic. <laughs> yes. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was just a masterful presentation. First of all, that's the first thing I want to say. Very useful and memorable. 
And I have one point. Uh, when you were speaking about the attachment to bliss, I began to uh, think over Franklin Merrill Wolf's um, description of satisfaction. Somehow he got, he was, must have been talking about bliss then, he was talking about satisfaction and then it dropped away. Now, he didn't do anything, it just dropped away. Could you comment on that, please? Yes, uh, a little bit. Uh, his path led to these two realizations which were bookends. What one he called a nirvanic realization, and the last one he called, uh, oh, what was the term? Is equilibrium, high, uh, high indifference. The nirvanic realization was the opening, and he experienced all this bliss. And this was a great delight to him. And this went on for 33 days, and there were these uh, pouring through of insights and so forth. Now, you see, the point is he wasn't practicing. He wasn't doing any meditation, you know what I mean? He was doing like a Dzogchen practice. He was just open to all this, and he wasn't clinging to any of them. He was writing them down in his journal because his wife told him to do it. He had, you know, he was, no, really. And that's why we have a record. Otherwise, we'd have no record. And so he would just get up, he'd dash them off, but he had no clinging to them, no attachment to them. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't at that point weaving them into any sort of philosophy or story or anything like that. So they just poured through, poured through, like all phenomena, and exhausted themselves. Finally, he didn't have to do a thing. And then he reached what he called the high indifference, what he described as a state of perfect equilibrium, beyond bliss, beyond emotion, beyond thought, beyond everything. And that was his you know, final realization. So he was really doing a Dzogchen practice. And the essence of, of doing a Dzogchen practice is to not do practice, but not be distracted by uh, the, the story of I, the ego dramas. That's where he was at. You know. uh, so I don't know if that's helpful. Thank but. you. Yeah. So he, he did the last, the second alternative. He did nothing. Yes. But, you know, this is uh, kind of interesting because this that's why it's much harder to abandon all effort than to push, push, because we know how to make effort. We don't know how to abandon effort. And he didn't, it didn't even occur to him to think that he was doing a practice. He's just looking at what happened to him and then looking at the Dzogchen teachings and you can see, oh, he was just doing that. I mean, he wasn't doing it consciously. It was just happening. You see what I mean? So in a certain sense, the abandoning the effort relies more on grace uh, in that sense, you know. So, uh, oh, Simone Weil said it beautifully. She said, uh, there's an easiness in salvation that is more difficult than all our efforts. <laughs> Somebody's hand went up over here? Yes. Well, I have a, a friend who's just like this Johnny you were talking about who had all these conceptions, and he refuses to meditate. Yeah. In fact, he's emphatically against any practice, and he's um, really stuck. And yeah. his life is a complete and total mess. His relationships with everybody. I know. Oh, yes. I, maybe it's the same guy. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, it's difficult because what underlies all this from the beginning is the fear. And so uh, every time we have to make this transition, every time we have to recognize that a part of our spiritual practice has now become a barrier because we've become attached to it. We have to also recognize that the reason we've become attached to it is because we're avoiding the fear. And the ultimate fear, of course, is we're avoiding the fear of selflessness. But just at that stage, a Janani who's so invested in their ability to intellectually understand things, to abandon that is, is quite frightening. I mean, then who am I? And all my accomplishments in life, what, you know, what do they amount to? You're asking me to, you know, give this up. I mean, I've spent my whole life getting PhDs and studying these books. I understand. And now you're telling me this is irrelevant. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. people don't want to hear that. So it's difficult. And, you know, this is not just for Johnny's, for Bhakti's too. And so it's the fear that's uh, being avoided. And if, someone, if you ask your opinion, give your opinion about it, but... You can lead a horse to water, you can't make them drink. And often what happens is there's a funny kind of grace that operates in our lives. Some people have to get to such a, a point of desperation before they can see what's going on and try something else. 
But don't worry about him so much. Look at your own life. <laughs> now, one of the things about these teachings is one of the things the ego mind likes to do is to take them and start applying them to everybody else around us. Oh, I can see where she's at. I can see where he's at. You see what I mean? Oh, I know what they should be doing. All of which is a way of avoiding looking at yourself. Yes, Lloyd. Uh, I've grown uh, or developed a a long-time attachment, it seems like, for reverence for life. And I started out, you know, doing a lot of hunting and fishing when I was younger, and then I didn't want to kill things, and I didn't want to extinguish this magnificent deer with all of these experiences and winters and summers and, you know, what up. And then I didn't want to fish because I didn't want to do that. And... I like this feeling that sort of started with the feeling of connectedness with everything. Uh, so the love and compassion I really feel strongly. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, is this antagonistic to do you? Do you give this up when, when you start thinking about uh, the doing away with the separate self that all of a sudden this this transition from self from, from self to non-self, life to death, really isn't that significant. And therefore, uh, what happens to compassion? Uh, uh, no, you certainly don't uh, give it up. Although the transition from life to death is relatively significant, but in the absolute sense is not significant at all. Uh, it's part of the great perfection. You might do a little Janani practice considering if nothing died, how what a hellhole this earth would become in a very short time, you know what I mean? But you can't go wrong with love and compassion. It is always an expression of the divine, whether you know it or not, whether you're spiritual or not, or whatever. But it's always uh, under delusion, mixed. The ego wants to turn it into the story of I. So then you want to look carefully when, in those moments, that you feel personal <coughs> suffering because let's say something's dying. And you want to look very closely because you want to see if you can identify what about this comes from clinging to some image of the way I want the world to be. So let's say uh, I'm walking through the woods, beautiful fall day, you know what I mean? And bang, I hear a shot and this poor deer comes limping across the path, bleeding, right? Now, this is nothing about being stoic and saying, well, the deer's going to die anyway, or life and death don't mean anything. No, compassion is there. But your suffering, personal suffering, comes from your not wanting to see that. You're not wanting to happen. You're not wanting to look at reality and face what is going on right now. And that part is what's added into the compassion that is not divine, that is you. You see what I mean? So if you drop that, you don't have less compassion. In fact, all the attention is taken off of me, what I would like, and it completely flows to the deer. And there is the suffering. It's not my suffering, and, and it's, it's not the deer's suffering. I mean, it's no longer a division here. That is compassion, suffering with. It's not a rejection of anything in life. It's a complete embrace of life. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, whatever happens at that point, we don't know. So there might be something you can do for the deer. Do you know what I mean? And you might meet the hunter later on down the trail, uh, having a drink, getting a conversation, and you might, uh, he might say, oh, don't you hunt? <laughs> Where's Dawn? Oh, yeah. I'll get, uh, no, I can't get off of that one. And you might say no. And he might say, well, how come? And you might explain to him what happened, that you, you know, grew up hunting, fishing, but over the, you know, you might actually, you know, through that, uh, affect his life. So you don't know, but you're just responding out of that love and compassion, not with the idea of changing the world or whatever. If the world changes, and it probably would if we were all more compassionate, that's gravy, that's wonderful, but that's not why we're doing it. Do you see what I'm talking about? A little. It, it, well, <laughs> it takes practice to find out. The yeah. thing is, we're always looking for what is self in here, trying to just see it and not suppress it and not beat up on us. Oh, I'm so selfish. It's just in the seeing of it, it releases. Because anything you can see is not you. It's an object. What I have found in my own experience, which is the only thing I can talk about, is having 
come from a very bhakti path to start with for a while, and moving very sort of naturally and organically, if you will, into a, um, more years of inquiry. And now, with the family crisis, coming back to the bhakti piece again. I'm moving on either side of the aisle here. Yeah, right. And, um, and finding a whole... But it's all happening very naturally. There's no... Hmm, where am I here in this path, and what should be, which side of the aisle should I be on? There's none of that sort of uh, questioning. It's just going within, as I'm sitting here thinking, I have an attachment, perhaps, to organic unfolding. I don't know. It's a sort of suddenly a feeling of, hmm, am I attached to something that, but no, actually, no, it's not an attachment. It, it just happens. And the, the fear arises of, oh, what happens when I no longer allow that flow to occur? Is it possible for me in this place in my practice, practice or path to put barriers up? Because the flow has been so seemingly so natural. Well, um, you can't, I mean, you can't know that, but that's the... One of the, one of the things, actually, for both bhaktis and jananis uh, is to get to the place where you're guided, where you no longer have to make the choice. When you're no longer acting, then you're actually more in accord with reality. Yeah. So if that is happening and unfolding naturally and there's no problems, don't let your mind make problems out of it. Yeah. Just well, there's no problem. If there's no problem in, in going with it, going with the facing the suffering, looking at it finding where the story of I is in it. There's no problem with doing that. When the paths merge, you no longer really uh, think of yourself as a bhakti or a janani or, no. you know, it just, it really doesn't make any difference. No. I mean, it just, it's just your path. It's just yeah. what's happening. Yeah. So our talking about this way is really uh, for the purposes of, I said, giving a kind of an overview that might be helpful to someone later on or, or what they're going through right now, a way to look at it. But these distinctions themselves aren't real. They're as imaginary as any other distinctions, mm -hmm. do you see what I mean? Yeah. So one way to approach a teaching like this is in, uh, whatever questions arise, if things are fine, let them arise, let them pass away. But, you know, if you've uh, been listening and if you've been listening openly without a lot of mental chatter back and forth of sitting there judging what I'm saying, I mean, later, I think it's a really good idea to, you know, check out what a teacher says. But in the time of actually listening, you want to really hear. Yeah. And then what happens is, at least this was my ex experience, they become seeds. And you don't even have to worry about remembering anything because... In the moment, it'll come to you. Oh, and that's what was supposed. To, that's what you were supposed to remember. The rest you weren't supposed to remember. If you didn't remember it, you weren't supposed to remember. And there's it. so much trust in that. Yeah. Well, this is what Doctor Wolf said. You know, you have to um, be willing to be possessed by truth, and you you could say be willing to be guided by truth. And what happens, for instance, when a Janani stops conceptualizing insights, they come and they go, and that's fine. Because now they are forming their transformative function. They get beyond just the mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. And whether you remember them or not or whatever, your life will start to change. Mm -hmm. You start noticing impermanence. You just start noticing more and more. You don't have to remember that you noticed impermanence. It's mm -hmm. just there. And then that will change your life because you won't be as uh, grasping or pushing away when you, when you actually are experiencing life this way. You see? Mm -hmm. So the less you think about your path in a certain sense, the better. Yeah. With the caveat, as long as you're not just being lazy and, you know, goofing off. I mean, yeah. so. That's not what I Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Yes, Wesley. This isn't a question. Um, oh, good. On this day, 40 years ago, Sherry and I were married. And we'd uh, like to invite you to partake in a cake and a little celebration. Uh, adjacent to the library when we break. Thank you very much. Yeah. Congratulations.